There are two different types of knowledge that we can have about things in life. One type is head knowledge. It's intellectual. It's something we commit to memory. Another type is experiential knowledge. And this tends to go deeper. It stays with you for the long run. It embeds itself in the fabric of your being. Let me give you a quick example between these two. One is, imagine if you'd never tasted an orange before. If someone were to describe it to you, you'd have a basic conceptual intellectual understanding. But until you taste it, put it in your mouth, you don't really know it. And that's what experiential knowledge is. It makes something very much your own. And personal growth and transformation needs to happen in the realm of experiential knowledge. And that's why I've created the Spiritual Habits Program, to give you the direct experience of applying spiritual principles like acceptance, mindfulness, balance, or compassion to your daily life. We're using the science of behavior change to apply spiritual principles into all of the moments of your life so that you can embody them more fully and experience their transformational gifts. In the one-on-one spiritual habits program, I help people who have familiarity with spiritual principles but struggle to apply them to their lives. And together we develop simple, actionable spiritual habits so that you feel calmer, more at ease, and more fulfilled. And to show you what I mean, I want to teach you a spiritual habit from this program. It's called the Spiritual Habits Perspective Paradigm, and it will allow you to release the three things all unhappy people hold on to. If you feel like you're always on edge, easily triggered, or irritated with the people in your life, this spiritual habit will free you from the grip of these strong emotions. If life feels overwhelming to you, this spiritual habit will shift your experience to one of being in a state of more ease and flow. And to access this teaching for free, go to spiritualhabits.net. In addition to the teaching, I'll tell you more about the one-on-one spiritual habits program, and I also offer a free 30-minute personalized spiritual habit call with me to see if the program is right for you. Again, go to spiritualhabits.net. I am excited to dive into this content with you. That's spiritualhabits.net. Our suffering can be our greatest tutor and our greatest guide. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Kamla Kapoor, an award-winning Indian-born American author, poet, and playwright. She holds a master's degree in literature from Kent State University in Ohio and studied creative writing at the University of Iowa. Kamla was on the faculty of Grossmont College in San Diego for 18 years, and her stories, poems, and plays have been published in prestigious American and Indian journals. Her new book is Rumi, Tales of the Spirit, 
A Journey to Healing the Heart. Hi, Kamla. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. I'm glad to talk with you. Yes, I am looking forward to it also. Your latest book is called Rumi, Tales of the Spirit, A Journey to Healing the Heart. And we will get into that book and a lot of your wisdom here in a minute. But let's start like we always do with the parable. There's a grandmother who's talking with her grandson, and she says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love, and the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops, and he thinks about it for a second, and he looks up at his grandmother, and he says, well, grandmother, which one wins? And the grandmother says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. Well, I think that that parable is, um, if you had to summarize how to go about living and how to go about thinking in a way that enhances the quality of your life, then that parable is a little nutshell of wisdom. And I think that for a couple of reasons, the the obvious one is that there is a battle going on between us, um, between almost every individual, uh, between what the West might call the good and the evil forces, and that we can have a say in who wins in that battle. There's obviously a wolf that is fearful and not very kind and not very nice, not very aware. And then there is the wolf that, if we feed it, becomes the opposite of the bad wolf. I want to say two things about it. The first one is that the parable places the responsibility for living with the good wolf squarely in our laps, in the lap of the individual. It's up to you which one you're going to feed in order to help it to grow, because when you feed something, it grows. So... That is very important. And the other part that I think is very important is that there are always these two wolves. You can't kill off one wolf. The grandmother doesn't advise her grandson to kill off one wolf because you can't. These are the two forces of life, if you want to call them yin and yang or good and evil. And uh, I would also like to add another point to this is that the bad wolf that is fearful and doubtful and not very kind and is, you know, um, has a lot of vices is absolutely necessary for the good wolf to become what the good wolf becomes if we feed it. So it's like Rumi would say, he would say, you know, we have to harness the power of the demons inside us so that they can hew stones for our palace. Now, that's a very complicated idea, but what it basically says is that it is our negative side. It is our bad and fearful and vulnerable and very human side that has a role to play in what we become. 
Right. And I like that part about the parable, too, where it doesn't really say anything about having to harm the bad wolf or harness the bad wolf or anything. I think it it sort of just says, hey, like, you know, you're going to need to put a little more attention over here. Exactly. And it's attention, it's awareness, it's consciousness. If you're not even um, aware that this is going on inside you, then you can't even begin to remedy it because most of us go through our lives uh, with a sort of a default mode of thinking, just being unawarely caught up in our passions and our emotions without reflecting upon them. Right. So... Let's start off by you telling us who Rumi is. I think a lot of people have probably heard the name. A lot of people know him as a poet, but he was more than a poet. But give us a little sketch of who he is. Rumi was born in the 13th century in in Persia, what is not, now called Iran. And then he moved to Turkey, where he spent most of his life. And he was just an ordinary human being. Uh, Till he, just like you and me and going about business as usual, till he met a wandering minstrel called Shamshuddin or Shams for, sh- uh, for short, and who really ignited the spiritual spark in him. But a few years after they met, Shams was was killed. And um, some people say, you know, he was killed by his jealous disciples because there was such a love between them. Or some say it was his son who killed him. But the the effect of Shams's death was uh, delivered a deep wound to Rumi's heart. And a transformative wound, uh, a wound that heals in the long run. So um, it is said that he, when somebody asked him to write down the poetry that he was reciting or the stories he was telling, that he wrote the Matnavi, which which are six volumes, uh, very dense volumes, not only of poetry, but prose and uh, lectures and parables and discourses on the right way of thinking. This is what has endured his writing. I believe it just poured out of him. And um, so we are left with this wonderful work of art and spirituality combined, which helps us to um, navigate our day-to-day lives. So I hope that gives you some idea of who Rumi was. Before he became a poet, he was, uh, you know, studying law, he was into jurisprudence, and uh, just a teacher. He was just going about his life till this particular event. And that's why I say in my book as well that our suffering can be our greatest tutor and our greatest guide because it's like, you know, it's like plants. If you you prune a plant in one direction, I'm sure a tree hurts, but it teaches the tree which direction to grow in. It's like teaching us to feed the good wolf. Right. And so with Rumi, what religion would he be considered to be? What tradition would he be considered to be part of? Well, this is a very interesting question. Rumi is very obviously 
from the Sufi tradition of Islam. And the Sufi tradition of Islam is like the mystical version of Islam. Just like in Christianity, we have the Bible, and then we have the Gnostic Gospels, which are far more mystical. But I also want to qualify that even though he comes from the Islamic tradition, the guides and the gurus that I admire say the same thing over and over and over again, that we're all made of the same light. We are all made of the same stuff. And The current divisions and probably even ancient divisions, political, religious divisions in our times and in history are deeply flawed because the thinking behind them are deeply flawed in the sense that, you know, a Jewish person will think of God as Jewish, a Hindu person will think of God as Hindu, and an Islamic person is Islamic. But really, if we're all creatures and brothers and sisters of the the one God, then we're co-sanguine. We share the same blood, we share the same spirit. And so even though he comes from the Islamic tradition, the message is not confined just to Islam or to Sufi mysticism. Right. You know, my experience is you read any of these traditions deeply enough and you start to say, well, boy, this all sounds pretty, (laughs) pretty similar, doesn't it? Sort of sounds like the same message just delivered in slightly different cultural contexts. And, you know, the slight sort of um, what would be the word for it, the slight warping that happens by filtering through it a human lens. But but when you boil it all down, there's an awful lot of similarity. It's the root. You know, if you think about the roots of all religion are the same, and it's the human urge to connect with something higher than us, to uh, which not just higher and beyond us, but something that is within us. It's not just uh, out there. Uh, it's, it's something we can connect with through our journey inward. And that's another thing that is similar to almost all traditions. And it doesn't mean that God is only inside us, but is is pervasive inside and outside us. You know, we are if you're all made of the same stuff, then uh, the same thing is filtering through all of us, no matter which uh, religion you turn to. But you have to uh, really go to the root of it and practice what you learn. Yes. You say in the book that the thesis, or rather the hope of this book, is that we can and must turn from being closed to being open, from contraction to expansion, from isolation to connection, taking the first steps towards wisdom, happiness, and joy. And I love that. I have been thinking an awful lot lately about that very idea of expansion, versus contraction, right? We've had a spiritual teacher on Adi Ashanti who said to me once, uh, ego is just a contraction, right? And and I've been thinking about this idea a lot, this contraction to expansion that James Hollis, the psychotherapist, often just asks a question when trying to evaluate a decision. Is this going to expand your life or contract it? So I love that idea so much. Tell me a little bit more about it from your perspective. 
Well, you know, um, we could characterize the bad wolf as the contracted wolf because, you know, to in order to be greedy or unkind uh, or fearful, uh, you're basically, you know, thinking from a very egocentric and a very personal point of view. And it's uh, not an aware point of view. So when you open out... And this opening out, by the way, happens a great deal, you know, say uh, when your heart breaks, for example. I mean, what happens to your heart when it breaks? It cracks open and it hurts. Of course, it hurts, but it also opens out. It opens out to receive others, to receive love, to receive kindness, to give it and to receive it. So to live in an open way, is to live in a vulnerable way, to take away that ego skin that separates us from others. It's like King Lear, you know, when he's uh, really is down and out, and here's this really autocratic king whose nose has been rubbed to the ground. When he finally gets there, his heart is open. He can live in a hovel with a crazy madman and love him. It's like in Rumi's stories, you know, all these stories are about characters who begin off being very closed. And then by living through their experience, you see how suffering opens them up to being more aware and connecting with their higher selves. What I see with suffering is for some people, suffering opens them up, they transform it in beautiful ways, right? And and they grow from it. And then there are other people who seem to be embittered or broken by suffering. And I'm kind of curious, I ask this to a lot of guests, but I'm curious from your perspective, what is the difference in the people who are able to use suffering to turn it into something beautiful versus the people it sort of implodes upon? First of all, I want to begin with the assumption that I think that all people are capable of transformation. But you're very right that some people, a lot of people, uh, get very embittered by their experiences and stay in that bitterness. Now, you know, I think the difference between the two is either you're happy being unhappy or you want to do everything in your power to get out of it. You know, to not realize that there is a different way of being and a different way of thinking around about the same issue. You know, that horrible thing happened to me and and now I don't want to trust anybody anymore. Or that horrible thing happened to me and I'm going to learn from that experience and move on and not live without trusting people because to live without trust uh, and hope is not a good life. So I would also qualify that, you know, if we didn't have people who were embittered by their experiences, we would have no room in us for compassion. So those of us who can transform, those of us who can, you know, transcend negative experiences and, and, and learn from them must have compassion because if there is hope for the people who are embittered, 
it is compassion for them, although you can't always reach them. But those that we can reach in our lives, the, the only truly transformative power in life is love. And Rumi says that over and over again, you know, and it's very sad that there are so many people who don't know how to live with hope and joy. And I think ultimately the answer is unknowable. Uh, the, the, the Hindu philosophy might say it's karma. It's uh, how you lived in your previous life. But we don't know that. Maybe in your previous life you fed the, uh, the dark wolf more. Uh, and now it's time for you to learn what to feed in yourself. But I, I don't really have the answer for that, Eric. And it is one of the greatest mysteries of life uh, because, you know, there are people who can transcend and there are people who live happy, joyful lives. And there are people who can't do that. And uh, all I can do is hope that uh, something will turn them. I want to let you in on a little secret I've learned from reading hundreds of nonfiction books. For most of them, you simply don't need to read the whole book. Often what you need can be captured much faster than that, and Blinkist is the best way to do it. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to, and it works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. Over 12 million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library from self-help to business to health books, history, science, and they've got the latest titles from the bestseller list as well as the classic nonfiction titles you've always meant to read. We recently had Gretchen Rubin on who's written five books. Now, there's no way I could have read all five of her books before the episode, but Blinkist allowed me to gain a better understanding of all of her work quickly. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, and for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com wolf, try it free for seven days, and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Dot com slash wolf to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash wolf. Here's something I wish I'd known about while my son was still old enough to take advantage of it. And it's something called Laurel Springs, which is an accredited online private school for students in kindergarten through 12th grade. 
imagine a school for your kids where you could set the hours based on what works best for your family. A school where you have more control over what and when they learn. A chance to really have more control and ability to tailor the experience to what's right for your child. That's Laurel Springs. They recognize that each child is a unique individual with their own personal interests, special talents, and unique learning style. Their flexible learning program offers challenging and diverse elective courses, and they are accredited by the Western Association of Schools and Colleges and Advanced Ed, which means their transcripts are recognized by colleges and universities worldwide. Register your child at laurelsprings.com wolf today and receive a waived registration fee. That's laurelsprings.com slash wolf for your waived registration fee. laurelsprings.com slash wolf. Certain people have tried to study resilience, and resilience is what we might say is the ability to take a really bad experience and, and come through it stronger and better. They often talk about that, it, that the idea of being able to find a coherent narrative out of it. And that's why I think the work that Rumi does, that you're continuing, of telling stories. Stories that show, hey, look how this person took suffering and transformed it. Look how this person did it. And it it sets up a narrative that allows us to try and, I think, frame our own experience in that way. I know in my own life, being able to turn a lot of the things that have happened to me, having a coherent narrative that shows those as growth experiences, shows those as things that propelled me forward versus things that brought me down, really transforms my relationship to them. And so I think story is a really powerful way to do that. Right on. And and all the stories of, of Rumi's stories that I've retold in this book and the other one that I, I wrote before that, I sectioned off in a group uh, stories under different titles, like uh, you know, one of the, one of the ones in this book is "Embrace Suffering," and and there are there are four stories under that about characters who embraced their suffering, who saw the good in their suffering, and how they did it. It's exactly what you were saying. And stories are also more powerful because when you're reading a story, you you relive it. You enter the story and you go through these experiences with a character and then come out hopefully on the other side with with a nugget of gold, with a gem. Okay, aha, I can do this too. I can apply this to my own life. And uh, then the, the second section is pray. And I, I deeply believe in the power of pray because um, a prayer, what is prayer but a dialogue with our higher selves? And uh, the dialogue is productive in itself because by, you know, having uh, like just exploring the other side and you can come to a conclusion that, well, if I'm this way, then I'm not going to be a happy person. But if I'm another way, there is another way of thinking. It's And it all boils down to perspective, you know. Uh, the perspective we have is how our life ends up being. So if it's a contracted perspective, then we're going to live a contracted life. 
And, and the third part of this book is surrender to the cosmic will. And that which is, you know, a lot of us get stuck with our bad experiences because we don't know how to accept that which has already happened and that which we cannot change, that we can only change through our thinking by finding what you call a coherent narrative in it. You know, by looking back, looking back and saying, okay, did anything good come off that? And making a list of it, you know, practical things. Do you have a uh, story you could summarize from the book that might talk about suffering? Yes, uh, several, actually. There is um, the very first story um, uh, called We Never Know Why is about this guy who gets, you know, he's sleeping peacefully uh, and suddenly he's woken up very rudely by, by somebody who's whipping him and beating him and punching him and he doesn't know what's going on. Uh, this, this stranger just keeps hitting him and saying, run, run, and, and, and this guy is running. He says, what the hell is life all about? You know, why am I suffering? Like, what have I done to this guy? And then the stranger makes him eat all these apples, stuff his mouth with apples, and then he makes him drink at a fountain, and he drinks and he drinks, and he vomits up, ultimately. And what does he see in his vomit but a black snake? breathing in it so he's he's really shocked and he looks at the stranger who says you know i was walking by you i saw you sleeping with your mouth open i saw the black snake slithering into your mouth and i wanted to save you so he said why didn't you just tell me that there was a black snake in me and you're trying to get it out and i would have borne my suffering better but the stranger says if i told you you would have died of fright. So in this story, the last sentence is Emma, who's the central character, fell at the feet of the stranger and said, oh, blessed is the hour you saw me. Blessed is the suffering you inflicted to awaken me. And all suffering has a power to awaken us. And all four of the stories under this section talk about the transformative power of suffering. And, you know, it's very important to remember this. And it's not always possible to remember it. Uh, we're human, we forget. Sometimes the black wolf predominates in us, you know. I don't think you ever get to the point where mm, the black wolf is, is vanquished um, and just the good wolf lives you. Um, the trick is to remember when you're suffering, for example, uh, which is not always possible to do, that this suffering, like all my other sufferings, will will bear good fruit. Right. I think the thing that's so interesting when we have these discussions about suffering and how it can be transformed and how it can bring all these beautiful things forward, all that is true. And yet, when you're suffering, you are suffering. That's the part of the story that gets lost is that like 
the suffering is real. You're going to be through that. It's, I often think about that idea. People say like, well, when one door closes, another opens, you know, and I often joke, yes, but nobody mentions the long, dark hallway in between. And, and that's kind of what the, what the suffering is. And I think we can use it to transform us, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt like hell. Exactly. And I think that the two go hand in hand. And that's what these stories are about. They're very human people who suffer, uh, you know, and when they're suffering, there's a wonderful story of Rumi's under the praise section about this uh, musician called Jalaluddin, who's a, who's a depressive, you know, and he goes to his uh, priest who tells him to pray, and, and he doesn't believe the priest because he feels that, uh, you know, the devil comes to him and says, you know, what are you mumbling in your beard for? Uh, is there anybody who says, here I am, when you pray to Allah, you know? And he's, uh, and poor Jalamudzin says, no, I never heard him uh, reply to any of my prayers to him. But towards the end of the story, and he has to go through horrific experiences uh, to realize that he's crying out to God and God saying, here I am, is the same thing, you know. And from my own life, I know that if I remember to pray when I'm really suffering intensely, because what prayer does is it reminds you that there is another way to think. For example, whenever I'm going through really hard times. And that's what the third section is about. I remind myself or try to remind myself or try to remind myself most of the time that this is the cosmic will. This is what is happening now. I can't change it. All I can do is accept it. And the accepting of it transforms it. Yeah. I was sort of touched in the book when you were talking about this acceptance and the challenge of this, you mentioned that it's challenging to get old, that accepting getting old is challenging. It's very challenging. Yeah, I turned 71 this year and, you know, my health is not what it used to be. My stamina, my intellectual acuity is not what it used to be. But, you know, as soon as I find myself worrying about it or bitching about it, I, it, it just gets worse. But like uh, I was diagnosed with, uh, you know, peripheral neuropathy and there's really no cure to it. I just have to accept it. And, it, you know, sometimes my legs burn and and like today they're burning. And uh, I just I say, oh, you got you got to just put up with it and do what you can, you know, spray them with all the sprays you've got and rub them or whatever, but you got to live with it. If you don't live with it, there's a wonderful story and other roomy stories about a woman who, um, you know, who doesn't like getting older at all and how she tries, it's called the Witch of Kabul, and she tries to lure this young man, you know, does the tremendous suffering that causes, her, her inability to realize, and, and Rumi's quote from that is that when the candle of your youth dims, you have to light the candle of the spirit.
With home security, there's two ways you can go about protecting your home. There's the traditional way where you wait weeks for a technician to do a messy installation that costs a small fortune, or there's the other way, Simply Safe. Simply Safe is everything you need in a home security system. It's award-winning protection. It's also the two-time winner of CNET Editor's Choice Award. Simply Safe blankets your whole home in safety. You get comprehensive protection for your entire home. Outdoor cameras and doorbells alert you to anyone approaching the home, and entry, motion, and glass break sensors guard the inside. You barely notice it's there, but what's truly remarkable is you can set up this whole system by yourself. Anyone can do it. It takes 30 minutes to an hour tops, and there's absolutely no trade-offs to your safety. You'll have an army of highly trained security experts ready to dispatch police to your home in a moment's notice, 24-7. And it's only 50 cents a day, with no contracts. That's why The Verge calls Simply Safe the best home security system. So go to simplysafe.com slash wolf today and you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk trial. You can't beat that. You've got nothing to lose. So be sure to go to simplysafe.com slash wolf. That's simplysafe.com slash wolf. You say in the book, if I don't actively assent to my aging, I am surrendering to despair and constant complaining, to being an unhappy and an old hag, which, which uh, that the, the hag part makes me laugh. But, but it's so true. Like, if I don't surrender to this, then I'm surrendering to, like you said, despair and constant complaining. I thought that was just a beautiful way to say it. Yes. Uh, you, you know, you surrender to one thing or the other, you know. So which one are you going to surrender to? Which one are you going to feed? I keep coming back to your parable. <laughs> and, and, and to assent uh, to your life the way it is, exactly the way it is, exactly the way it turned out, exactly the arc of your story, what didn't happen, what happened, the dreams unfulfilled or the ambitions unfulfilled or how much you achieved or did not achieve, you know, Unless you say yes to it and embrace it fully, you're going to be unhappy. Yeah. I want to go back to something you said just a couple minutes ago, and it and I may not get this exactly right, but you said that, that one of the characters in the story realized that crying out to God was the same as hearing God. You're crying out to God, and God saying, here I am, is the same thing. You know, that, you know, let me give you my own example. You know, if I'm suffering intensely and I remember to pray and I, I remember to just turn towards this higher power in myself and, and say, uh, could you help me please? You know, or say, could you help me accept this because I can't change it? Or if I can change it, could you help me to change it please? The process of here I am to help you starts, you know. I firmly believe in the power of prayer, like I said earlier, because as soon as you start praying, you've got a different perspective. You're not mired in your suffering. You're doing something about it. You're asking for help. You have recourse. So to turn towards that which helps us to overcome 
uh, our suffering, which we fall into periodically, because you know our lives are not linear. We never get to the point where where we are totally enlightened. Our life is circular, and it's it's like a spiral. And 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 if you want to think of uh, you know the axis of the spiral as um, suffering or as God, then you're always moving either close to or moving further away from it. You're revolving around it. All the time, and some some of these things are periodic. Some of these are tied to you know the the atmosphere or the environment or the uh, you know the way the stars are aligned or whatever. We're connected to the vaster life that we inhabit. We are not just isolated creatures living our own little lives. We're connected to everything there is. We're connected to nature. We're connected to the sky. We're connected to God, if you want to call that energy God or nature or love. Uh, Rumi's other word for God is love. So that's why I said to remember to remember. And that is the trick because we know when we're suffering, we forget. Yeah, you say at one point in the book, I thought this was a, was a great way to say it, Briefly, the examined life means that we not only think, but we also think about our thinking. And that's a little bit of what you're describing here. It's remembering to sort of look at our thoughts from a different perspective. Yes. It's first of all realizing that you're in a bad place right now. You know, you're not doing well. And, and you, uh, you know, if you've uh, lived the examined life, you've developed techniques by now like breathing or meditation or stretching or going out for a walk. All of these are very important because, you know, the physical and the mental and the psychic are on a continuum. You know, then you remember that you have to do all these things. And uh, the first step is recognition. You're not in a good place. And the, and the second step is to watch what you are doing to not be in that good place. You know, sometimes you're either not accepting what's going on or you're not embracing it or you want something else instead of what you're getting or you're, you know, mired in your desires for this or that, this, that, and the other. And so, yes, what you said is true. So I think we're nearing the end of our time here, but I want to hit on something that you say in the book. I'll just just read uh, this paragraph because I think it ties us back to the wolves also. And you say, the ultimate marriage, the holy union, we are told repeatedly by our guides, especially the preeminent psychologist Carl Jung, takes place in the temple of our souls. It is the marriage between our lower and higher selves, between human and God. The goal of this marriage is not perfection, but wholeness. The human and the divine together form a whole. Well, that kind of says it. Uh, (laughs) And and I don't think I could add to that. And um, perhaps just to say that uh, this, you know, just like when you love somebody, you stay connected to them uh, and you make the effort to stay connected. So this is the love between the higher and the lower selves that keep 
stops that connection and ends up in the marriage where, you know, the ultimate, all our guides say, is to live beyond pleasure and pain, is to live beyond suffering and, uh, and joy. It's, it's, it's to be in a place where you expect to do both and yet have cultivated the perspective where you know that this is going to pass and everything, whether it's good or bad, is going to pass. And um, you'll arrive at that axis uh, around which you've been revolving all your life. You know, to have hope for this marriage is a wonderful hope to have. And uh, to strive towards the marriage is something we can do. The responsibility for it is ours. Right. I love that idea of the marriage between our higher and lower selves, between human and God. I've often heard people describe humans or, or a spiritual description is like, we're part animal, we're part God, right? And, and we're sort of in the middle. We're sort of stuck in the middle there. And we try and live out both those to the best of our ability. Yes, and we're not stuck in the middle. We're sort of joined by these two, if, you, if you'd like That's to think that way. That's a better way to say it, yes. yes. <laughs> and to live at this node where we are joined. And there's something else in between animal and God, and that is human. And the human is the one that examines and changes uh, his or her thinking. The human is the one that has the power to evolve because it's ultimately all about uh, our own personal evolution, which, by the way, I firmly believe raises uh, the evolution and consciousness of the planet. Uh, that's our responsibility as, as human beings. Uh, all the sages, Socrates says it, know thyself. And the unexamined life is not worth living. And the other element that we haven't even touched on is awe, you know. I mean, just think about the world you live in. Think about the mystery. It's not just you. Look outside in the garden. Look at the plants. Look at the sky. Look at the sun. And it's like Einstein says, you know, the person who doesn't feel awe at this existence that we are here at this point in this time and this body is like a snuffed out candle. So we don't want to be snuffed out candles. We want to do everything in our power to stay connected to uh, the wonder of existence. Yes, I find that uh, another great way to approach the divine is through just looking at the mystery that life is and just how tremendous it is. Like what's going on inside my body right now is so unbelievably complex. I mean, there is so much happening every second. Boom, boom. I mean, trillions of chemical reactions. It's just staggering what all is going on right as I sit here and talk to you, that I'm not even doing any of it. It's just happening. And uh, the fact that we have all our limbs, we've got fingers, you know, I mean, I mean, really, if you start counting your blessings from your toe upwards and how many things are working, that's one of the ways I think when I worry about or think about or suffer about getting older, you know, look at how many things are working for Christ, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, give thanks, give, you know, that's another very, very important uh, message that all the guides and the gurus give us. Gratitude is the ultimate alchemy. As soon as you say, hey, thank you, 
that I'm alive today, <laughs> you know, that I'm breathing at the very basic level and then count all, all the other blessings. And that's one way to not stay stuck in bitterness and, and, and in suffering and, and, and in the contracted state. Yes, gratefulness is an expanding state for sure. If we can get ourselves there, it's the outflowing. Well, thank you, Kamla, so much for coming on the show. I've really enjoyed this conversation and we'll have links in the show notes to your book and um, how people can find you online. So again, thanks so much. I really enjoyed the book and I really enjoyed getting to talk with you. Thanks, Eric. I was happy to be interviewed by you. I'm looking forward to hearing both of us talk. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneufeed.net slash support. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show.